bringing relevant and engaging insights to human resource and talent development professionals. This is Talent Champions with Diana Thomas, sponsored by Franklin Covey. Here is your host, Diana Thomas. Hi there, it's Diana Thomas, your Talent Champions host. Before we begin today's episode, I have a quick favor to ask of you. We've created a listener survey to get a better understanding of our audience, your needs, and how we can best serve you in future episodes. So please visit our website, talent-champions.com, and take a few minutes to share your thoughts with our team. As a thank you for me, you'll be entered into a raffle to win a copy of my book, Be More Strategic in Business. Again, the survey is linked on the homepage at talent-champions.com. I'm so appreciative of your support. Now on with today's episode. Our guest is the very impressive Dr. Gleb Serpersky. He's the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, which was created in 2018. Their mission is to protect leaders from dangerous judgment errors by neuroscience and behavioral economics to develop the wisest and most profitable decision-making strategies. He holds a PhD in the history of behavioral science from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of the book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. Most recently, he published the book Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. Welcome, Gleb. Thank you so much for having me on, Diana, and I really appreciate that kind introduction. I am so excited about today's topic, which is making decisions in a disruptive environment. And we've had a lot of practice with that lately. (laughs) We did. Yeah. But before we get into the topic, I'd love for you to share with our audience a little bit about your background and what brought you to the field that you're in today. Well, I got into the field, strangely enough, from my childhood. And my field, of course, is decision-making, risk management, disaster avoidance, and strategic planning. I've been doing this for over 20 years. And the Disaster Avoidance Experts is a company I started in 2018, but my career stems from starting from 1999, doing coaching, consulting, and training in these areas. But I really got into it when I was a kid. So my parents, as everybody else, follow the typical advice of going with your gut, trusting your intuitions, following your heart. Unfortunately, their gut reactions often disagreed with each other. So for example, my mom liked to buy nice clothing. She'd go out and she'd buy a $100 sweater. And my dad was, well, kind of a cheapskate. So when she came home, he'd yell at her and say, no sweater should be worth over $20. And then they go at it, bringing up past pains, past hurts, getting into fight after fight after fight. And as a kid, that already impacted me, obviously. That was not great to see my parents having that much fighting. But even more than that, I saw that every fight was followed by same behavior on my mom's part, same behavior on my dad's part. It never actually changed anything. That really made me wonder, why do adults make such dumb decisions? (laughs) Why do they not actually change their behaviors? Or why do they keep getting into conflict without any positive outcomes? It's not helpful for anyone, including me as a kid, having that suffering from them doing that. And it got me thinking, you know, why did nobody sit me down when I was a kid and say, hey, kiddo, here's how I make good decisions and here's how I make bad ones. You know, I was hoping I'd be taught that maybe in high school. Maybe my parents were kind of dumb and didn't know that. Well, high school didn't teach me that. 
I was hoping I'd be taught that in college, and that was not something I was taught in college. And I was uh, starting college in uh, 1999, and there was the tech leader boom when the tech companies were partying like it's 1999, for those who remember that Prince song. <laughs> well, in just a couple of years later, 2001, 2002, when I was 21, there was a dot-com bust. And all the people who were in the front pages of the Wall Street Journal for all the right reasons in 1999 were there and for all the wrong reasons in 2002. So it showed me that people who are held up as the titans of industry, the best decision makers, right? Business leaders, the top decision makers, they make terrible decisions all the time as well. So clearly something is screwed up with our decision making process, I realized. So I decided to study this. So that's how I became a trainer, consultant, coach. And over time, you know, I saw there was very little quality information on how to make good decisions out there in the broad sphere of training, decision-making business literature. So I had to go into the place where it's actually researched, those dense, dense academic journal articles in neuroscience and behavioral economics. And that's how I ended up becoming a cognitive neuroscientist and behavioral economist. So I've been in academia studying these topics, doing peer-reviewed research of various sorts for 15 years. And I brought all of my experience of doing training, consulting, and coaching together with the research experience in neuroscience and behavioral economics to write my book, Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. And that was in 2019, published with Career Press. And of course, my newest book was a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, another one of my publishers who works with me, who, they know about my expertise in disaster avoidance. So they approached me to write the book very quickly. So it's a very quickly written, traditionally commercially published book called Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic, where I talk about how I'm helped my clients and I'm helping my clients transition to managing all aspects of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic, especially where leaders are making bad decisions and there's so many problems. So that's how I got into the field and that's what makes me passionate about it. And, you know, I really want to help people avoid that kind of disastrous decisions that my parents experienced around financial decision making. And of course, the tech leaders experienced. And that still helps motivate me today, especially when I see my clients falling into some dangerous traps. Okay, so you probably get the award for the most interesting background and how you turn that around to be a positive. I, I hope your parents are so proud of uh, giving you this foundation and, and motivation. Well, they, they're not pleased that I'm sharing this in all of my <laughs> interview, interviews where people happen to ask me about it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But I think it's such an accurate point is where have we been taught to make decisions? And I was thinking about that and I'd encourage all of our listeners to think about who taught you to make the best decisions. Because until I really went through the whole total quality management and how do you make better decisions and map out processes and streamline things, I think I was making decisions based on those that, you know, I worked under or mm. with my gut. We've been conditioned for the majority of our life, many of us, is that we have to trust our gut and go with your instincts, you know, when making these important decisions. But what you're saying is that can actually be damaging advice, right? And tell me more mm -hmm. why. 
it's actually unfortunately very damaging advice. It's you know what my parents you know, they went with their gut. Tech leaders went with their gut, and they all made bad decisions. Unfortunately, our gut reactions, and here's what the neuroscience and behavioral economics in this shows. And neuroscience is the study of how the various parts of our brain influence our behaviors, thinking, feeling, and behaviors. And behavioral economics is how we as human beings behave in economic situations. Well, what the research shows is that our gut reactions, our intuitions, our feelings, our emotions, our natural state, whatever you call it, is not adapted for the modern environment. It's actually adapted for the savanna environment. When we were small, lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, we were hunter-gatherers, and that is what we are adapted for. So, for example, tribalism. It was very important, still continues to be a very important driver for us. We tend to look for people who look like us, who share our values, who care about the same things that we do, and we want to be with them and we value these people and we give them much higher ratings than they deserve in all areas of professional activities and personal activities. So we go with our gut on making decisions about people. Unfortunately, in the complex multipolar global environment, it's a very bad idea to judge people solely based on how similar they are to us, which is what gut reactions are about. They judge of whether someone is part of our tribe or not. Very bad idea, very problematic. And of course, the if somebody belongs to a tribe that we see as different from us, then we judge them even more negatively. Then rather than neutrally, we judge them negatively because in the Savannah environment, we had to oppose hostile tribes that were trying to invade our territory. We're the descendants of those who were very good at opposing hostile tribes and very good at supporting their own tribes. So we are the descendants of those people who you notice didn't die. That is that is what our heritage is like. So that's tribalism is one out of many aspects. That's just an example. That's especially bad for talent, the leadership and uh, people leadership that causes us to make many dangerous judgment errors in the modern world stemming from our evolutionary heritage. And cognitive neuroscientists like myself call these cognitive biases. And cognitive biases are specific descriptors of particular mental patterns that we need to watch out for. We can learn how to watch out for them and avoid them and defeat them, but we have to know what they are and then we have to know effective strategies to address them. I know it was probably six years ago when I started to go through different certifications for learning about how to best coach people and get them to come up with their own answers. It was more recent studies about how the brain works, being this neuroscience. And you'll know better than I did. Is it 10 years, 15 years old? So we're not talking about research that has been around for a ton of time. And I, I just, when I started to read and learn about neuroscience, I was thinking, wow, everybody needs to understand this. Spouses need to understand it so they can mm-hmm. communicate better with their spouse and parents of children and workers. If you really understood how your workers work and you're the manager, you would do things differently so that people buy into the solutions and support things. Neuroscience is the study of how our brain works. And our brain works in ways that are really counterintuitive to what we may feel is the way that it works. For example, we perceive ourselves as rational, logical beings who control ourselves, control our lives, control our world, control our behaviors. That's the natural intuitive perception that we have of ourselves. In reality, that's not the case at all. (laughs) For example, our emotions 
our feelings, our intuitions, the part of us that we can't immediately sense, they actually determine about 80 to 90% of our behaviors and our thought patterns when we just go forward and let things go normally as we go. There's two thinking systems, two mental systems. One of them is called system one or the autopilot system. So the autopilot system is the much older part of our brain. It's associated with the amygdala for those who know about the structure of the brain, but it's not a big deal. The essence is that it's very intuitive. It's very quick, very powerful. It turns on in milliseconds. And that's what triggers all of these emotions, feelings, gut intuitions, reactions, all of these instincts. Let's say you, you got, a box of, got a box of dozen donuts from Dunkin' Donuts, right? You, you come to the break room, you open it for everyone in the office, and then you eat one donut. And you're very much triggered, and it's delicious, and you're like, um, I'll just have another one. <laughs> then you have a second one. And then you're like, well, maybe maybe I should try a third one. And then without noticing it, you, you end up uh, eating half the box. That's kind of gut reactions. That's your intuition. Now, why is that? Well, in the Savannah environment, our, it was very important for us to eat as much sugar as possible when we came across a source of sugar, honey, bananas, apples, whatever. That's how we survived. So we're the descendants of those who survived because they were triggered by sugar. In the modern environment, it's a very bad idea to eat as much sugar as possible. There's an overabundance of sugar and food companies are trying to stuff our faces with sugar. There's a reason donuts are served by the dozen, right? Mm. So that is not good for you to eat all the sugar that you can. But that's our gut reactions still trigger us to do that. That's the autopilot system. Now, we also have another mental system called the system two or the intentional system. So the intentional system is the system that is responsible for abstract logical thinking, for the way that we go forward with our lives and we build deliberate habits, mental habits, mental beha behaviors, physical habits, behaviors, which enable us to have the kind of life that we want. So for example, a habit might be, hey, you know, I will not get a of a gallon of ice cream. I'll only get a pint of ice cream. That way, you know, even if I, I eat the whole pint, it's not going to be nearly as bad as if I get a gallon. Kind of that's the habit. Or I will not get uh, a dozen donuts. Instead of I'll get you know a bushel of apples for everyone in the office. <laughs> so and then you know you end up eating two apples. It's not a big deal. You build up. Those are examples of specific physical behaviors that we take in order to manage our physical fitness. Of course, our diet, the way we eat, is very important for our physical fitness. When you feel yourself resisting that, you know, third donut, you know, out of a box of dozen donuts, that's when your intentional system is fighting with your autopilot system. And your autopilot system mostly ends up winning when you're fighting in the moment because it's much more powerful. So it's just very hard to use our willpower to restrain ourselves. That's why it's best to build up habits, mental habits that prevent yourself from having to have those willpower conflicts like getting fruit instead of donuts, for example. So that's the physical fitness. And you probably already are working on your physical fitness. Unfortunately, we're not working on our mental fitness. And mental fitness, of course, has to do with decision making. What kind of decisions are you making? Most people still end up, like you said, Diana, going with their gut, following their intuitions, doing what their boss showed them to do. And their boss, of course, learned from their boss and their boss learned it from their boss and they learned it from the army because that's really the origin of our industrial corporate system from World War II came from the military system. And that's a very bad precedent, of course, for civilian life. And 
well, anyway. So people tend to go with their gut, follow their intuition, and they don't realize that by doing that, they're behaving in the same way as people who essentially eat a box of dozen donuts or eat a whole gallon of ice cream or eat a whole bag of potato chips when they only meant to have a serving. They are following their intuitions, their gut reactions, and they're making very bad decisions when they're just doing their natural primitive savage self, as Tony Robbins would say, go be savage, be primitive, whatever those phrasing, or Malcolm Gladwell would say, blink, these business gurus. But those behaviors are very bad. Those mental habits are very bad if we just go with our natural intuitions. Instead, what we need to do is be civilized. And of course, being civilized means adapting habits that are a good fit for the modern environment, where we live in a very complex civilization that is not at all similar to our savannah environment. So we need to develop mental habits that are a good fit for our modern environment. Just like we developed physical habits for our physical fitness, we need to develop mental habits for mental fitness. So that's critical in order to survive and thrive and make the right decisions in today's world. Yeah, that's a great explanation. I love the analogy of eating the donuts and understanding about these two systems in our you know our brain i teach kids yoga and we talk about the bulldog part of your brain that just gets stuck and wants to go forward and do what it wants to do and then the wise part of your brain and techniques to tap into that so i love the explanation because i i really believe that people that are non-psychology majors need to understand at least a portion of this if they want to improve relationships, decision making, Mm -hmm. and lead at at a higher level. So um, great explanation. So, you know, you mentioned a couple of the gurus out there that encourage you to go with your gut. Why do you think there are so many business experts that say, just go with your gut, trust your gut? Why, Why do we keep doing that when we have research that shows we shouldn't? Oh, it's simple. It It's comfortable. Just like food companies are not going to tell you, you know, you should really eat fruit instead of eating donuts. <laughs> They're not going to tell you that because that's how they make money. They make money by feeding you donuts. That's what people want to hear. They want what's comfortable. By definition, going with their gut reaction, whether to eat a gallon of ice cream or to make bad decisions around people, tribal decisions around people, is something that's very comfortable. That's what your gut reaction is. It's what you feel comfortable doing. Well, let's say that your favorite uh, leader let's, in a company is making all the right decisions. You feel comfortable with that. So you're going to ignore information about this leader potentially making bad decisions. That doesn't feel comfortable. So we flinch away from that information. That's a cognitive bias. One of the many cognitive biases is called confirmation bias, where we look for information that confirms our beliefs and ignore information that doesn't. And that's just one example out of many problems. So it's uncomfortable, really quite uncomfortable to restrain yourself from eating a dozen donuts. And it's quite uncomfortable to restrain yourself from not making tribal-based decision-making about people or to look in the face of information which disagrees with your worldview. Those are uncomfortable things and it's hard to do them. Business gurus, they are not going to tell you to do the uncomfortable things unless they really care about your well-being because who would hire someone who tells them to do an uncomfortable thing, right? (laughs) So that's why so many business gurus, the ones who are the most successful, the ones who are making the most money, they're making money by 
great marketing and great sales, which of course always, always involve telling customers that they're smart and great and should keep doing what they're doing. <laughs> that's what great marketing is about <laughs> and great sales is about. And that's not what I do, but uh, you know, there's a reason I'm not, I don't have the prominence of Tony Robbins, <laughs> that I'm, I don't tell people to do what they already want to do. I tell people to do the hard things that are actually going to get them to achieve their goals, make the best decisions, but they have to overcome a lot of discomforts in order to do that. That's my ethics. I really am concerned with making sure they make the best decisions, even if that's uncomfortable and hard. Yeah, so maybe look, let's look at the flip side then. So how do we evolve or how should we over time be making better decisions and move out of our comfort zone and really start to create those mental habits for this modern time to make the best decisions? Well, one of the things that we need to be able to respond to and understand about our decision making is all the problems that come from the our intuitive, primitive, savage decision-making. I already mentioned that people problems, and we can talk about that in much more detail about specific cognitive biases, dangerous judgment errors that come from that. But there's another category of dangerous judgment errors that comes up in business environments very often, and that's response to threats. So in the Savannah environment, it was very important for us to have a very strong fight or flight response. That's our primary response to threats, the fight or flight response. It's what we jump at a hundred shadows to get away from that one saber-toothed tiger. You might've heard of it as the saber-toothed tiger response. That was great for our primitive Savannah ancestors with the descendants of those who had the best fight or flight responses, of course, because the others didn't survive. They were a little bit slower to get away from the tiger, so the tiger got them instead of our ancestors. <laughs> well, the problem is in the modern environment that we, we adopt the fight or flight mindset that causes us to make very bad decisions. So, for example, consider how, how, what happens when your boss gives you some constructive critical feedback or your client, if you are the boss, when a client gives you some constructive critical feedback, what's the tempting thing to do? People who are more have the more of the flight response. That's to ignore the email. It's uncomfortable information. You don't want to face it, so you delete it. That's the one. Then the people who have more of the fight response, what they would tend to do is they would want to write an email back saying, what are you talking about? I'm great. You're a jerk. <laughs> you know, this, you're That's why you not. always have to wait 24 hours before responding, right? Or at least sleep on well, it. <laughs> and, and there you go. And that's one of the mental habits that you want to develop. And that's a hard thing to do. It's completely counterintuitive. You want to make a decision fast and either fight or flight, either of those categories. That's our temptation. That is not the right thing to do if you want to succeed in the modern environment, whether if you want to succeed as an employee responding to your supervisor or as a supervisor, entrepreneur, founder, CEO, boss responding to your clients. Bad idea. What you want to do is, of course, you want to slow down. Then you want to figure out what in your systems and the processes and the way that you do things led to this constructive critical feedback because it's most likely not a one-off phenomena it's likely a result of the way that you do things of the systems and processes and so on that resulted in this constructive critical feedback so for example i was just uh, doing a coaching session where the coaching client was describing to me how he had to give feedback to an employee who was excessively verbose really wrote very long emails 
and the employee did not take it well and you know kind of had a number of back and forth with the boss and that was not a good response by the employee so the employee then had to get coaching on how to respond effectively con- to constructive critical feedback <laughs> <laughs> i've been there before so, yeah. <laughs> yep so that's not you know great that's not something you want to do you want to understand what is in your systems and processes that results in prob- in this problematic constructive critical feedback then address whatever is going on in your systems and processes and then just describe to your supervisor or your client how you will address the underlying problems to prevent this sort of situation and of course apologize to smooth ruffled feathers to address the emotions that is the ideal response it's a very hard response to do you need to really develop a series of mental habits you know slowing down that's one second realizing it's not about it's you know it's not about them it's about you though because it's your behavior that resulted in the issue that they observe so then you want to understand what about your behavior resulted in the issue what about your systems and processes and then how do you will fix those things and then how to smooth ruffled feathers in the situation so you have to have emotional intelligence and social intelligence to smooth and address the situation those are all complex skill sets that you need to develop and build up those are the mental kind of mental habits you need to really perform effectively in the modern professional environment, but they're not intuitive at all. Yeah, no. So, you know, in today's world, have you seen examples of people trusting their gut and it having negative effects? Of course. So, for example, we can talk to about another big problem that we've been having COVID-19, the coronavirus, right? So that is a big, huge problem that people are dealing with, and we're completely not adapted to it. A number of people, the vast majority of the people, I may be honest, use the fight or flight response in responding to it. So what is the flight response? A number of people are completely ignoring the information. They're saying, oh, it's not a big deal. It's just like the flu. It's a hoax, whatever. They're ignoring it. They're saying it's not something that we should care about, we should do anything about, whatever. They're fleeing from this really uncomfortable information about the reality of the pandemic. That's the flight response. The fight response. People are either going to the store and buying up all the toilet paper and uh, everything like that. So kind of excessive, aggressive actions. Or they're doing things like businesses are turning to their emergency continuity plans, business continuity plans, emergency preparedness plans. Now, I'm someone as a disaster avoidance expert. I've done a lot of these business continuity plans. And I can tell you, they're not a good fit for the situation. What they're great for is when for when let's say a blizzard happens or when houston got flooded right that was a great fit it's one or two week interruption but this is not a emergency COVID 19 is not an emergency it's a major disruption it's a high impact low probability slow moving train wreck there are many of these types of examples that occur that can potentially occur and that do occur i mean the fiscal crisis of 2008 2009 was an example. A number of technological disruptions were an example when many retailers did not adapt well to the online shopping experience and environment, and they went for the slow-moving, high-impact train wreck that really crashed a lot of them, and they crashed and burned. So there are a number of examples in our modern world of this high-impact, slow-moving train wreck of a disaster that people are not prepared for, and they're not responding well to it. They are not realizing one of the biggest cognitive biases surrounding COVID-19, the specific cognitive biases, is called the normalcy bias. Now, 
what happens with the normalcy bias is that we tend to envision the near-term future as being mostly like the past. You know, next couple of years, near to medium term, will be mostly like the last few years. Maybe people will be using their smartphones more. That's generally how we envision the future. That was a great fit for the Savannah environment because really things didn't change much there. You know, what's going to happen? There's not much change in that environment. But in the modern environment, we have much more rapid changes and we're much more globally interconnected. And that causes a situation developed in Wuhan, China, you know, middle of China, to very much impact us, the whole globe, in a very powerful and negative way. That's something that we're completely not adapted for, not prepared for, but it's something that happens in the modern world. And so many people can't get it for their head that the we're never going to go back to December 2019. Our world is changed irre irrevocably forever due to the pandemic. This is a real serious issue. Right now, we in the US don't have any effective ways of addressing the pandemic except suppression, which means shutdowns and social distancing. What we're facing until we have a vaccine is waves of loosening restrictions, then increase in COVID-19 coronavirus cases, and then increasing restrictions to prevent medical systems from being overwhelmed and then decrease of cases. And then, of course, waves of these restrictions and loosenings until we have a vaccine. The earliest possible vaccine timeline approval of vaccine is sometime in early, mid-2021. Then, of course, it'll take about six to nine months, maybe, to produce enough vaccine to vaccinate at least the vulnerable categories here in the US. So we're looking at the end of 2021, early 2022, for this end of waves of restrictions and loosenings. So people's habits, norms, values, desires will be very much changed by the pandemic. And I see most business leaders, all sorts of professionals, not considering that, that are going about their lives as though you know, they're going back to normal and they're not. And this is a really bad decision making pattern that we're facing in the middle of major slow moving train wrecks like COVID-19. Yeah, no, that that's so true. I could relate to so many of those things that you were saying is this feeling that I, I just want to go back to my comfort zone. And, and you hear yeah. it all this all the time when it, we're back to our normal. And it's like, oh, it's, you know, I've had a chance to interview some fabulous experts over the last couple months and talk to some key leaders and some really tough, challenging hotspots in the US and, and our world has changed. And it'll, yes. my, my, my gut's saying, I hope you're wrong. I hope the, it, you know, in the <laughs> next couple of weeks, we get this vaccine out there and it, it's all wonderful. But you know, when you really think through and the amount of time and, and how safe it needs to be and the, the research and the massive amounts and yeah, it's, it's much easier to say, yeah, when it comes, let's, let's just believe it'll be here, you know, and the world will go back <laughs> to normal, but yeah, yep. no, great well, point. That's why I have to make realistic decision making realistic decision making is the only way that you know you need to accept the pain right now and the earlier you accept the pain of facing the truth of reality the better prepared you will be for the future because you can protect your future well, that's one of the biggest problems that we have one of the biggest cognitive biases that we experience is called hyperbolic discounting now, hyperbolic discounting is kind of a fancy sounding term for excessive discounting of the future. We tend to be very short term oriented, which in the Savannah environment, totally understandable. You know, when you kill the mammoth, you couldn't freeze the meat for the future. You need to have, you know, use the resource right now and not worry too much about the future. You need to be very in the moment oriented. 
in the modern environment, of course, we can put our money into banks, we can invest a lot of resources into do, developing our professional career, we can you know, make a strong plan for our company in the future, for human resources, for all of these things. But we're not wired to appreciate the long-term future. We're not wired to appreciate that, hey, if we make sacrifices right now, in the short term, we can have a much better future. You know, one of the things I'm talking about to pretty much all of my clients is moving to virtual teams. That's an incredibly important and valuable transition that they can make if they move to virtual teams, not have an office, give up their office space. And a lot of them are doing that, but they're mm -hmm. doing that with a lot of reluctance because, of course, they're still used to you know, the office. But they are doing that. But it's taking a lot of prodding and encouraging for me to make them realize that if they get over the short-term pain of moving, doing that virtual transition, they will be much better off in the long run when they deal with the consequences of the pandemic. Yeah. And I'm seeing that the people that I'm coaching, the leaders, maybe at the beginning, they weren't that supportive. But now they've seen how their employees are just more productive and engaged and happier because they're not traveling two hours a day. And mm. yeah, so I think it's forced us to move into the, the future. Uh, at least that's the, the point of view I, I've been uh, seeing mm. the most. So I'm excited about that and encouraged about it. So thinking about this business world and re really thinking through our best decisions, one of the things I know many of us grew up using to really evaluate our decisions and ensure we and our companies and our teams were moving in the right direction was SWOT analysis. And actually, when we were doing the pre-call, you were saying you're not a big fan of SWOT analysis for helping to make the best strategic decisions. Can you give us some more clarity around that? Happy to. So the SWOT analysis is where an individual or more often a group evaluates the strengths, weaknesses and opportunities and threats facing them, facing their business, whatever. This is a problem. The SWOT analysis is a serious problem because the people most often doing this are leaders, you know, executives looking at their careers, or more often a group of leaders, the C-suite of an organization looking at their business and how they're going to go forward. Well, the challenge with this situation is, one, executives, people in leadership positions tend to very often be optimistic and they fall into the optimism bias. And I say this as someone who suffers from a very strong case of the optimism bias. The optimism bias is kind of like it sounds. You tend to be very optimistic about the future. You look at opportunities and ignore threats. I tend to be risk blind. I tend to think that grass is green on the other side of the hill, even though it's sometimes yellow. I have 20 ideas before breakfast and I think they're all brilliant. <laughs> That's the <laughs> optimism bias. Right. So then the folks who are like me, if they all get in a room together and do the SWOT analysis, most leaders, like I said, tend to be very optimistic and it helps them get to the top. You know, in the Savannah environment, the it was important for the leader of any tribe to convey confidence and positivity and optimism as a way of building up the tribe and motivating them to, you know, to go out of the cave when it's really scary and so on. Important to be optimistic. In the modern environment, we still look for leaders who are the alpha monkeys in the room, who have that optimism and confidence and charisma shining through, even though in the modern environment, you know, you don't need to inspire your people to go out of the cave to face a scary world. The world is much less scary and it's much better for leaders to be servant leaders and in, empower their teams to make the right decisions 
while shaping the strategy of the organization. That's a much better role for leaders. Fortunately, there are too many of them who they're still rise in the leadership roles because of how optimistic they are and charismatic and how they project confidence, even though doing so causes them to make many bad decisions and take way too many risks in pursuit of opportunities. Pretty much every time I've seen leaders do the SWOT analysis, they list way too many strengths, way too many opportunities, not nearly enough threats, not nearly enough weaknesses. That's a big problem. You know, the SWOT analysis ends up being very skewed. And then they put their resources and their strategic plans into place based on the SWOT analysis. They feel this sense of comfort. Unfortunately, it's a false comfort. It's a false comfort that they've done what they needed to do. Now they can just invest the resources and go forward and everything will be fine. Bad idea. That's not what actually happens, but that's how people feel. So with that in mind, they go forward and they make bad decisions and they get themselves into a lot of trouble. It's especially problematic when it's a group process, because in a group, what happens is that people usually align their opinions around the alpha monkey in the room, the top leader in the room. That's called groupthink. That's another cognitive bias, where people tend to be worried about expressing negative opinions that go against the opinion of the leader who tends to be very optimistic. And uh, I've seen that a lot. The most effective leaders make sure to open up space for countervailing opinions and especially uplift these people, give these people criticism who act as devil's advocates, who criticize the group consensus, who can act as a check on that uh, optimism. And they hire people into the team who are specifically pessimistic. So the company I run, disaster avoidance experts, we have six people. You know, if if we had all optimists, I mean, I like to work with optimists. Let me just be honest. I much prefer working with optimists because they're my people. I bond with them well. You know, collaborate together very effectively you know, because we reinforce each other's ideas and we think each other's ideas are brilliant. So if we just had all optimists on the team. We'd have 120 ideas before breakfast and we'd be running in all different directions. And that's not a good idea if you want to make actually an effective company go forward. One of the biggest reasons for company failure is that companies run out of money when they're growing, when they're taking on new projects and they're not focused enough in the projects that they take on. They take on too much, too much growth, and they run out of money. Big problem. So that's a, not something that I want for my company. And what I make sure to do and I advise my clients to do is hire some pessimists on the team. And pessimists, they fall into the opposite bias, the pessimism bias. So they think the grass is yellow on the other side of the hill, even though it's sometimes green. They look at threats. They ignore opportunities. They see the exaggerated problems of each idea. So they're terrible at generating ideas. But what I do is I give my 20 brilliant ideas over to them. And then they say, well, you know, these are all half baked potatoes, but maybe these three are the least bad ones. So let's work on these. And then they take care of all the flaws. They're great at, at evaluating ideas because they see the exaggerated flaws of each one and they take the three best ideas or three least, least worst ideas from their perspective. And then they fix the flaws to the best extent they can and they implement them. They're great at implementation as well. So this combination of optimists and pessimists is a great combination, but you need to deliberately create a space for pessimists and you need to get them to strongly be represented in the room when the decision-making around the SWOT analysis is made. Otherwise, you're really going to screw yourself up and make bad plans for the future.
I think those are some wonderful tips because I don't see SWOT analysis going away, but if we could make them more effective by really (laughs) focusing in on the areas that those threats and those weaknesses, because as I've facilitated many of these sessions, it's so easy because you bring together the people and the people tend to come that are optimistic and they can think about the future and everything. And that's Mm -hmm. part of creating that vision, but the reality piece, so you really make sure that you're focused on the right thing. So I think those are some really really good suggestions. And for the leaders that are listening and those coaching the leaders, when somebody has an uh, opposing point of view or more pessimistic, you should like stop and celebrate. Good. You're not seeing it the mm-hmm. same way I am. Let's let's think about this and go down this path for a little bit. So you've given us some great suggestions already. And we've talked about kind of slowing down and really thinking through the decisions. What are some additional actionable tips or strategies for making more effective decisions? Well, in my books, you know, so never go with your gut, how pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. I talk about five steps to making the best daily decisions. So decisions that you don't want to screw up. This, these five questions are meant to prevent decision disasters. They're not maximizing decision success, but they're to make a good enough decision to satisfy, so to speak. For the folks who are listening, you should know that I also go through an eight-step decision-making process there that helps people make the best decision possible. So not simply satisfies, but really make the best decision. And that's for major decisions, ones where you're making a really serious effort to have as perfect a decision as possible. So let me talk about the five questions to avoid decision disasters. That's quick and effective technique that you should be using two to five times a day more if you're making more decisions, depending on what kind of decisions you're making when you don't want to screw up a decision. So five questions to avoid decision disasters. First, what important information didn't I yet fully consider? What evidence didn't you take into account? You want to especially look for evidence that goes against your beliefs, that goes against your intuitions. We're very tempted to look for evidence, cherry pick evidence that goes, that agrees with what we already think. And that's a big problem when you want to make the right decision. So let's say you're writing an important email to a client, trying to convince the client to do something that's going to be difficult for them right now, but really in in their long-term interests that you know it, they really know it but you need to convince them to do it. What important information did you consider about their decision? Maybe in the email, you didn't include information about, well, what are all the problems with this project that it would be a drag and challenging and difficult for them to do it. It's not a pleasant thing to include, right? Well, think about what would happen if you do include that information and if you explain why they should still do it in spite of it being a drag and real hassle and a problem. That would make your email much stronger. It would make them more likely to do what you want them to do. But most of us would tend not to include that information because we don't want to draw their attention to it and we don't want to even think about that information. That's an example. Second, what dangerous judgment errors, cognitive biases didn't I yet address? So what? which of these mental blind spots didn't you take into account in the situation? So let's say you're writing an email to the client. Maybe you didn't take into account hyperbolic discounting. We talked about that, how in the short run that would be difficult for the client to do, but in the long run that would make much more sense. You can take it into account and revise the email to highlight to the client how, hey, you know, you agreed presumably that it's a wise idea for the client to always look in the five years into the future and then plan their life in such a way that they wind up where they want to be in five years from now. And from that perspective, it would be very good for the client to take on this difficult project, even though it's going to be a drag right now. 
Third question, what would a trusted and objective advisor suggest I do? So think about that little angel on your shoulder. What would they tell you to do? What would you tell a friend to do in this situation if you know the friend was facing the same sort of decision-making as you? You know, you can get 50% of the benefit of this question just by posing it to yourself because you're taking yourself outside the situation. And you can get the other 50% of the benefit by calling this trusted and objective advisor or if you're a millennial, texting this person. Fourth, how have I addressed all the ways this could fail? So think about the decision-making process with your client. How have you addressed the ways this could fail? Maybe they're in a state that's experiencing restrictions due to COVID-19 and they're staying at home and they're cooped up and they're frustrated and their kids aren't able to go to summer camp and so they're crawling all over them. So that's not a great state. So they're in a bad mood and they're distracted. How would you revise the email? So read the email as though you're in a bad mood and distracted and then think about how you could revise the email in such a way as to remove all possible negative interpretations that you know the client might think that, oh, hey, you are implying that they're lazy for not taking on this project. You know, don't do that. <laughs> Make sure that you remove such implications and then highlight the really important parts of the email for someone who is really distracted. Finally, fifth question, what new information would cause me to revisit this decision? So what new evidence would cause you to change your mind? For example, for the email, you can put a pivot point, a change point, a revision point for a week from now, let's say. So you can you can schedule a time on your calendar for a week from now. If the client hasn't responded to your email, you'll give the client a call and say, what's up, let's talk about it. So that's a specific revision point and with a very clear specific behavior that you'll take if you don't see the kind of action from the client that you would like to see a response. But if you don't have that revision point, you'll be kind of waiting, wondering what's happening. Is the client responding to you? Are they upset, frustrated with you? You know, become anxious and ruminate. But if you do set that revision point, you can just let it go, move on with your day, do other things and not worry about what the client's doing because you know what you'll be doing in a week. So those five questions will help you save, you know, they only take a couple of minutes to walk through if you made the right decision. And if you didn't make the right decision uh, and it takes more time, that in, that's a very good use of your time. Th these five questions, you know, you walk through them maybe, like I said, two to five times a day. That's, you know, each time maybe less than five minutes. So something like 10 to minutes to 25 minutes a day, depending on the decision. And they'll save you thousands and thousands of hours dealing with problems from bad decisions and many, many thousands of dollars dealing with these problems. So I strongly recommend to my clients that they use these five questions all the time that they don't want to screw up a decision. Yeah, and I love those. And I think it'll be uh, helpful for our audiences. We'll include those as the, the post read for this uh, episode. So they'll actually have those in front of you. And it sounds like the more you use them, the more you're creating that mental habit of just stopping and creating the space and asking those right questions before you move forward to make sure that you're making the best decision. That's exactly right. So you're creating that mental space and you're creating that mental habit. And remember, the mental habits are the critical things you need to create, you need to build up in order to address those cognitive biases, the dangerous judgment errors that cause us to really screw up our decision making when we go with our gut. If you, what I have that for my clients is that they have these questions in front of them, in front of the computer in the form of a poster or a note card that they always see and that reminds them whenever they're doing something important enough that they don't want to screw it up, that they keep in these questions in consideration and make sure that they take those steps before making the decision.
And I could see these strategies helping not just in business decisions, but personal decisions as well as creating that better way of thinking things through. So is there ever a time when going with your gut may actually be the right thing to do? Only in times that are similar to the tribal environment that we faced. So in the tribal environment, well, let me be clear, there are times when we're facing life and death situations, when sure, it's the right time to go with your gut, when you have a bus battling at you, you don't want to take the time and ask the five questions. <laughs> you know, what important information didn't I yet fully consider? <laughs> That's not the right time to do that. That's a fight or flight situation. Great, fight or flee. You know, well, don't fight the bus, flee. <laughs> Get out of the way. So that's life and death situations are great. They're, that's the similar to the savannah environment. That's what our emotions, our intuitions are wired for. That's great. Another uh, area is when you're dealing with someone who is part of your tribe, who you know really well, who you have comfort and familiarity with, and you know how they react. And then you notice something is off. So you're feeling, oh, something is off with this person. You know, someone with whom you've collaborated for a long time that you trust, somehow their newest business proposal is striking you the wrong way. It doesn't seem like it's they're acting in a way that you are comfortable with. That's a time to be suspicious because in the tribal environment, of course, one of the things that really happened a lot is infighting within the tribe for social status. So we are used to reading cues from people who we know well that indicate something is off and something is weird and something is going on that we should be suspicious about. That's a situation with which you should trust Mm -hmm. your gut more. Yeah. I keep thinking back like when I didn't trust my gut, gut and the example that comes to mind is you know i hired a lot of people working and recruiting and then having a large team that continued to grow and advance and move out into other positions and sometimes when it was between two candidates and my gut was saying one thing and then i went a different way Uh, but what i would interpret that is don't trust your gut with initial things but if there's something there is ask those questions, gather more information before you make a quick decision. Would that be accurate? Yeah, you should always care. You should always gather more information before you make a quick decision on yeah. an important people call. That's that's always important. So that's uh, question one, in fact. What important information didn't yeah. I yet fully consider of the five questions? Yeah, the, and, and those biases, those unconscious biases. I want to learn more because I know sometimes, like you said, if, if the person is similar or has had similar situations and you can just relate to that, you've got to make yep. sure you're still stepping back and, and making the most objective uh, decisions. Abs- absolutely. Right. These cognitive biases work in really mm, strange ways <laughs> as well. So there's the halo effect and the horns effect. The halo effect is when you like one aspect of somebody, when you feel like they're part of your tribe, you'll like that person, judge them much better than they are. The horns effect is the opposite. When you dislike one aspect of someone, you'll judge them as much worse than they are. Mm. So I was giving a presentation in Columbus, Ohio, which is the home of the Ohio State Buckeyes. You know, go Bucks! right? <laughs> big, big, big football town, college football town. And I was giving a presentation at the regional HR conference, so which had people from central Ohio, lots of Buckeyes fans. I was, so it was Diversity Inclusion Conference. I was giving the final keynote and I asked the people there, over 100 HR experts, would you hire a University of Michigan fan? Now, for those folks who know, the University of Michigan is the big, big rival of Ohio mm-hmm. State. So I asked over 100 of these HR experts, leaders in diversity inclusion, only three of them indicated they would hire a Michigan fan. Only three raised their hands wow. saying they hire a Michigan fan. 
It's just because of that, and I mm-hmm. have that video recorded, fortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so now I use it in my keynotes and say, you know, to give an indication of how that works, because just that that's how our brain works, that we feel antipathy toward someone. We feel dislike toward people whose team we root against. And then we feel dislike for that person as a whole, and then we don't want to hire them. So that's those are big problems in our thinking. And that's something we need to address in order to make the right HR decisions. Oh, that's a great example. So based on your expertise, all the research you've done, and your recent book, as we adjust to this new normal, or next normal, I've been hearing it uh, called as well, what advice do you have for us planning for the future? So in my book, Resilience, Adapt and Plan for the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic, I talk about making sure to develop three scenarios for the future. What is your optimistic scenario? What is your moderate scenario? And what's your pessimistic scenario? So I give an example in the book. The most relevant scenarios for optimistic, moderate, and pessimistic is how we'll get out of the pandemic, which is the vaccine. So the optimistic scenario for the vaccine is mass vaccination by end of 2021. That's the optimistic scenario. So great. That's a very low likelihood of scenario. We have to get everything going perfectly, everything going right. Then that's not something you ever want to plan for. You might hope for the best, but you plan for the worst, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a moderate scenario. Moderate scenario is something like 23, 24, 25, you know, takes more, couple more years than we anticipate to do that. So what happens if we have max vaccination by 2024? And remember, we have these waves of restrictions and loosenings all the time until then. And finally, the pessimistic scenario, you know, we won't have a vaccine mass vaccination until 2027. Sounds cynical, sounds pessimistic, but really, we still don't have an effective vaccine for the flu. Our vaccine for the flu is only 50% effective. And we've been trying to get that vaccine for over a century. So that's not that pessimistic at all from the perspective of some other vaccines that we've had trouble getting. Therefore, you have those three scenarios and think about where would your career and your business and your organization be in each of these three scenarios. Then think about the kind of problems that you would face in each of these scenarios and how you can solve these problems in advance. So, for example, if you anticipate that you are going to have supply chain disruption issues then you can get other backup suppliers. If you anticipate that you'll have, that people in your company will have some trouble, you'll have, let's say, trouble with retention, then you can make sure to develop other pipelines for your company. So right now, think about that. Then think about opportunities that you might have. If you are going to make an effective strategic plan going forward, one of the opportunities might be that your competitors stumble and you'll have good talent to hire away from these competitors. That might be an opportunity. Think about all the resources that you would need to address the problems in each scenario and to seize the opportunities in each scenario and reserve those resources and take the steps to address these problems and whatever you need to do and seize the opportunities. And finally, plan for the at least the moderate scenario, ideally the pessimistic, if you can have the resources. This is what I'm telling all my clients. Plan for the pessimistic scenario. If it's not a pessimistic scenario, you can always use the resources for another purpose, right? So it's, it's okay. There's a reason that um, Berkshire Hathaway 
built up a war chest of over 180 billion to make good investments into companies. They, that's very smart. And they're picking up companies on the cheap right now versus the airlines, which had great profits in the decades since 2008, 2009, wonderful profits, but they gave away all that cash in the form of buybacks for stocks and of, to improve the stock price. And of course, their stock price is in the you know, toilet right now and they don't have cash in hand. So this is an illustrative scenario on the big boys of where you want to be. You want to be the Berkshire Hathaway, not the airlines. Then you can make sure that you make an effective plan and prepare for the pandemic going forward take advantage of any stumbling by your competitors and protect yourself for that future. Yeah, great advice. Very insightful and straightforward. And I know our audience is going to uh, be able to use that to deal with the issues we're having today and in the future if we have any other mm -hmm. slow-moving trains that are going yeah. to be train wrecks and, and be disasters. So no, very, very good. So as, as we start to wrap up, can you share with us who's had the greatest impact on your professional life? And you wouldn't be where you are today without that person's influence or impact. Great question. Probably my mentor, Tim Ward. So he is an expert in communication, training and development. And he's been helping guide me for a while in developing the business. So I told you I've been doing consulting, coaching and training by myself since 1999 and including moonlighting as, as an academic and as an academia and i started disaster avoidance experts following tim ward's example in 2018 and looking at a successful company he built intermedia communications and so he's been collaborating he's been uh, mentoring me and that has been something that's been really helpful for me he has a great book out uh, on virtual communication right now resilience virtually speaking so, so in a time to ad adapt and plan for the coronavirus pandemic right because uh, effective virtual communication very important so he's been really someone who i admire a lot oh thanks for sharing that and i think you know everybody should have at least one trusted mentor. If you can have more, yes. I think that's wonderful because we, like you said, and you address them on your books, we are we all have these blind spots. And if we have people that we trust that can point them out, um, you know, it just helps us grow and be more effective. So what final piece of advice do you have for our talent champions? I think I tell talent champions that you should really, really, really not trust your gut uh, and not trust what's comfortable which is the same thing. Your gut feelings is what's comfortable for you. When we go with what's comfortable for us, we often make the worst decisions because what's comfortable is very often not what's true or what's right or what's good. It's simply what feels pleasant, what feels right, what feels good. And what feels good is not necessarily what is good. What feels right is not necessarily what is right. What feels true is not necessarily what is true. And it's a very hard thing to differentiate because of that autopilot system. It causes us to really believe that whatever we feel is right and true is indeed right and true. Having that ability to step back and say, hey, let me be humble about my feelings. Let me not assume that if I feel something is right, that it actually is right. Let me not assume that if I feel something is true, it's actually true. Let me instead question, gather data, gather evidence, evaluate the situation, be somewhat suspicious and use the five questions to avoid decision disasters in order to maximize the likelihood that I'll make 
the right decision about anything that, that actually matters. That is what I want to advise people to do. It's a very hard thing to distrust your gut. And, you know, this is the reason I get paid. I don't get paid much money for not very popular because I give the hard advice. That's true and right, but it's not something that people want to do. No, I love it. Wonderful advice. So how can our listeners get in touch with you and continue to learn more from you? Of course, they can check out my books, which are available in bookstores everywhere. Well, if your bookstores are closed, you can check them out online. Never go with your gut. How pioneering leaders make the best decisions and avoid business disasters. There's the blind spots between us, how to defeat unconscious cognitive bias and build better relationships. And the most recent one, resilience, adapt and plan for the new abnormal of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. Get those, enjoy those, and check out my resources on my website, disasteravoidanceexperts.com. Make sure to check out disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe for a free eight video-based module course on making the wisest decisions and a free assessment on dangerous judgment errors in the workplace. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe free eight video based module class on making the wisest decisions and assessment and dangerous judgment errors in the workplace. And finally, I'm really available on LinkedIn. That's my most active social media platform. Spend a lot of time there. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, please connect with me there. Dr. Gleb Tsipursky, G-L-E-B-T-S-I-P-U-R-S-K-Y. Thank you so much. This has been so fascinating. I love your passion about your topics and about sharing and helping others learn and make more effective, better decisions. So thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed and I've learned more and you have encouraged me to want to continue to learn and grow so that I can be a better leader, consultant, uh, coach and help uh, others implement what you've done. So thank you for making the time. Oh, you're very welcome, Diana. Thank you so much for inviting me on the show. Here's a summary of today's takeaways. When you go with your gut, you're making decisions based on the experiences that helped your ancestors survive on the wild savanna. Unfortunately for our brains, savanna survival skills are not well suited to the modern, complex, global business environment. We have to work to actively overcome our cognitive biases in order to make strong decisions. We can form habits to help us overcome the intuition impulses that aren't serving us well in many situations. Controlling our impulse to overeat sugary treats is a great example. Using willpower to resist a box of donuts is very difficult. Buying apples instead of donuts can be a more productive habit. Eating the entire box of donuts is a physical example of making snap business decisions based on a gut reaction. Ignoring information that makes you uncomfortable falls under confirmation bias, in which we seek information that confirms our beliefs. Avoiding disastrous decisions will often require you to push outside of your comfort zone. The fight or flight reactions that serve people so well on the savanna can be very damaging in the business world. When you receive critical feedback, pause for 24 hours before responding. Wait until you can see the feedback objectively and determine how you can use it to help you grow. When faced with a crisis, think long-term. 
Although the circumstances around the pandemic are constantly changing, it's becoming increasingly clear that we won't go back to the way that we were before. Businesses need to adapt for the long haul, even though that likely means making some very painful decisions in the short term. As you go through the process of assessing risk, using a SWOT analysis or another tool, pay attention to the pessimist. Top-level leaders tend to be optimistic people, and we can create an echo chamber that sometimes doesn't allow for dissenting views. It's good to be optimistic, but also you need a plan for the worst-case scenario. Five questions can help you prevent decision disasters on the small-scale, everyday decision points. They are, one, what important information didn't I fully consider? Two, which mental blind spots did I fail to account for? Three, what would a trusted objective advisor suggest that I do? Four, have I addressed all the ways that this decision could fail? And five, what new evidence would cause me to change my mind in the future? There are some situations where trusting your gut will serve you well. Like you can certainly rely on your fight or flight reflex in a life or death situation. Also, your gut will give you strong, reliable cues in relationships with people that you know well. If something just doesn't feel right, figure out why. In the current pandemic, Gleb recommends that every business creates three plans for the future. An optimistic scenario, a moderate scenario, and a pessimistic scenario. He forecast anywhere from one to seven or more years before we attain mass vaccination against COVID-19. Planning for that long-term possibility puts your business into a strong position to act as things shift. If you reserve resources for the pessimistic scenario and then end up not needing them, so that's even better. This way of thinking and planning can help us at any challenging decisions, especially when the stakes and outcomes are so critical. To wrap up, your gut feeling comes from what feels comfortable. We often make the worst decisions when we go with what's comfortable versus what's right. Step back from your feelings and attempt to see beyond your cognitive biases to, to discern the truth. It's not easy, but awareness is half the battle. Thank you for being with us today. We've provided links to Gleb's books and other resources on our website, talent-champions.com. Look for the episode 39 page. While you're there, make sure you complete our listener survey to help us plan for future episodes. Everyone who completes the survey will be entered into a raffle to win a copy of my book, Be more strategic in business as a way to say thank you for your support. Over the next few months, we're slowing down for the summer. On our next episode, we'll continue the conversation about adapting to change and making strong decisions with a global business leader who understands how to set up an organization for long-term success. That one will release on July 9th. Hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or join our email list to make sure that you don't miss it. Thanks for listening to Talent Champions with Diana Thomas. For more information about today's show, please visit talent-champions.com.